Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, which I think is the fourth event in our British politics series. And today we're looking at what the lessons are that the political parties can draw from the recent elections. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Tim Bale uh, from Queen Mary University of London, formerly of UK and Changing Europe, of course, uh, Sarah Hobolt from the LSE, our own Paula Surridge of UK and Changing Europe and the University of Bristol, and last but by no means least, Paul Goodman, uh, editor of Conservative Home. Welcome to all of you. If I can just kick kick off let's let's talk about individual parties if we can and paul turning to you first if that's okay what what lessons have the conservatives drawn and should they draw from this local this this bunch of elections we've just had just um a couple of notes at the start obviously um <clears throat> i need to <clears throat> steer clear of scotland and wales because uh, i haven't looked at them and will you know concentrate on this extraordinary agglomeration of local government, mayoral and police uh, commissioner elections. And um, another cautionary note, um, I've not yet seen a combined turnout figure um, for these three. And you've always got to be very careful with these elections because turnout will be lower uh, as you extrapolate ahead to the next general election than the 67% of people who voted in the general election of 2019. So you can never be sure whose voters didn't turn out, whose um, uh, will turn out next time, and who will turn out who doesn't usually, or will be voting for the first time. So, I mean, having said all that, I thought I'd try looking at these elections through the prism of the usual, though not the invariable model, which is your midterm, um, government supporters don't turn out because they're protesting, and you get um, results that show that. So. You know, do these elections fit into that um, mould? Well, you know, only up to a point. The Tories went down three councils um, in what I call the Greater Southeast: Tunbridge Wells, Isle of Wight, Cambridgeshire, um, Oxfordshire. Was no overall control, but they've lost control there now. So, in, in bits of um, what you think of as their heartland, they lost councils, but um, they won more than they lost. Uh, they went up six in uh, the Greater Southeast, including one, Harlow, that they took directly from Labour. So when you look at that um, and put it alongside what happened in provincial England, the old theory collapses because the Conservatives, um, uh, they're up 16 councils and over 200 councillors, including Northumbria, Pendle, Nottinghamshire, Cannock Chase. This is you know, a bit outside um, their uh, heartland, to put it mildly. And Labour actually lost control of Durham for the first time in, in 100 years, with the Tories doing quite well up there. So no surprises about what I'm going to say next. Um, I think one is seeing a continuing culture change, like it was going on before Brexit. There was evidence of it in the 2017 general election, up to a point. Um, Brexit has brought it to the fore. The Conservatives, of course, were greatly helped by the, the vaccine rollout. And broadly, what I think is happening um, is that the centre-right vote is uniting behind the, the, the Tories with the Brexit party vote folding into the blue column and the centre-left dividing between Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens. Now, another word of caution, I think that's a bit 
it's true, but a bit simplistic, because the Greens took um, council seats off the Conservatives all over the place. Surrey, Sussex, Derbyshire, Stroud, Northumberland. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the Greens later. But on the whole, I think this is pretty much as good as it gets for the Conservatives, unless it can go on to win a whole batch of parliamentary seats in which they were a good second last time and the Brexit party had a good vote and they could squeeze them. And there's a whole belt of these seats in Western South Yorkshire running from um, Pontefract and Normanton and Castlefield all the way down to Rotherham, where the Tories had no councillors at all before these elections, now got 20, three fewer than Labour, and they're quite a sort of powerful opposition. So that's the upside. What are the downsides for the Tories? Well, in party terms, really, I mean, not much of a threat from the Lib Dems in these elections in terms of councils taken, the Lib Dems got St Albans. I think the Greens is a very interesting subject, and the Tories are um, vulnerable to uh, the Greens all over the place, right, where the Greens campaign well, where voters don't want to vote for Labour or feel the Lib Dems are a bit of a tired force. Right, the Greens are a bit of a, a, a new kid on the block. And there's... Um, always been a bit of a green blue overlap in 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 some senses so they've got to watch that and labor well you know if i was looking for good news from labor i'd be looking at the mayorals where the labor took um cambridge uh, and peterborough and the west of england off the tories um and um in these city areas among urban voters public sector voters younger voters really the tories are still nowhere pretty much and labor are doing well it's finally the big question that keeps coming up in that context is, is there a kind of red drift? Is there a movement of these younger voters out of the cities, into the suburbs and the countryside, threatening the Tories in the long term? Well, I, I kind of think, as um, uh, you academics like to say, we need more research. Um, we had a bit of a look at this um, uh, at Con Home, and we did find the Tories um, in, in the home counties down a bit here, a bit there. I'm just going to end for a moment on Surrey. The Conservatives lost 14 councillors in Surrey. Um, I've been uh, talking around a bit, and maybe there's a bit of a Remainy, um, better off, um, more old-fashioned Tory sort of flavour there having an effect. But um, when I've been asking around, really local issues have been the big thing. So in Cambridgeshire and Oxfordshire, it's protests about planning and housing um, in Guildford, um, and, you know, therefore in Surrey, you're seeing much the same thing. So don't underestimate the local factors, let alone on the Isle of Wight, which is always sui generis. So um, if there is a red drift, it does seem to be taking place much, much slower than the movement to the Tories elsewhere in what were traditional Labour heartlands. All in all, uh, I see no reason why Boris Johnson would be put off trying to get an early-ish election in 2023, if the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act is, is gone by then. Um, and that's where I think we're going, unless Scottish independence comes uh, in the way. But that's another story. Is this, is this going to be a difficult coalition to keep together when we move back to normal politics and particularly normal economic policy? Is, this, is that going to be a problem the Conservatives face? Because it's a very disparate coalition in terms of economic interest, isn't it? <laughs> You, you can't command, uh, you know, 100 percent, 75 percent, 80 percent of electoral support indefinitely. 
something's going to crack. But the question is when, and that comes back to your your word normal. You know, what is normal now? Yeah. And as, as I say, going back to 2017, there were signs of this happening pre-Brexit when the Tories took that brace of seats in the general election off, off Labour that were masked by their losses. I mean, seats like Walsall North, Stoke South, uh, Derbyshire Northeast, um, Middlesbrough, uh, South and Cleveland, up to a point where they've really built their majorities up. So normal um, is, is, is looking pretty strange. I mean, maybe the new normal, as people like to say about COVID, really is, um, you know, the Tories for the time being doing better uh, among voters who didn't go to university, who'd be thought of as being working class. And Labour maybe will have um, problems there for the time being, just as social democratic and socialist parties of a traditional kind uh, are having throughout Western Europe. Okay, brilliant. Tim, what about Labour then? What, what, what um, well, it's almost a mirror image, isn't it? Um, mm. Labour clearly um, performed really, really poorly uh, these elections. I mean, I think it lost something like three hundred and no, two hundred and thirty-six seats, um, which you know, for a midterm election uh, for an opposition, is is really a, a, an appalling. Uh, thing. If you look back at 2010 to 2014, when they were in opposition um, under Ed Miliband, uh, you see that Labour won in 2010, it, it gained 391 council seats. Next year, 857. Year after that, 534. Year after that, 290. Year after that, 324. So you can see that normally, uh, Labour in opposition would expect to be picking up seats rather than losing them. Uh, uh, and as Paul said, the, the problem is also where uh, they're not winning or where they're losing. And that is in uh, those seats in the Midlands and the North uh, that they desperately need to win back uh, to have any chance of government in uh, 2023. And I agree with Paul, the election is, is likely to, uh, to occur then, I think. I think the point that Paul made about um, turnout and being very careful uh, not to extrapolate uh, too far from local elections is incredibly important. It's important when an opposition actually is doing well, as well as when an opposition is, is doing badly. There is a tendency always, I think, um, for, for people to say, well, these are real elections. They're not just opinion polls, but personally, I would always take opinion polls uh, over local elections in, in terms of you know, extrapolating uh, results. I, I think I'd also say from Labour's point of view, if, if I were them and trying to look on the bright side, I'm not sure that to characterise these elections as midterm elections is, is quite right. In some ways, I think the pandemic has essentially, you know, um, if you like, arrested the development of the political cycle. Um, so, you know, we, we're not really... Um, if you like, two years uh, into uh, a Conservative government mm. in the way that we would normally be. Uh, we're almost stuck where we were at the beginning of, of 2020. And I think I've heard Paula say that in some ways, these results are exactly what you'd expect in some ways, uh, if that were the case. So uh, I think, you know, Labour obviously you know, um, needs to worry about this. It's not picking up anywhere near as much support as it would need to, to be able to come back in 2023. Uh, but it is, you know, a, a, an abnormal uh, time. Um, 
that said, uh, you know, there are some other worrying uh, signs. They're making absolutely no headway in Scotland. Uh, you know, that, that really is a write-off, I think, as far as Labour is concerned in terms of um, parliamentary seats next time mm-hmm. around. They've got a new Labour leader there, but I just don't think uh, he, can, he can make uh, as much difference as he needs to to be able to win, you know, anything like a substantial number of seats mm-hmm. in Scotland. Wales, obviously, Labour have done much better and there was an incumbency effect here. Uh, you know, and, and that may help them next time around because they lost seats to, to the Tories um, at the last election in Wales. So if they can hold on there, uh, that's good. Um, I think the other thing I would say is that Labour uh, really have suffered, I think, in the aftermath of this election as much as they suffered in, in the elections themselves. I think that, you know, the, the quote unquote botched reshuffle has been an you know, absolute disaster for Keir Starmer. I, I can't really remember uh, a, a leader of the opposition's poll ratings, his personal approval ratings, plummeting in quite the same way as we've seen uh, happen to Keir Starmer over the last week or so. Uh, you know, and that obviously has to do with the, you know, the, the, the reshuffle and just the, the general sense that he's not leading an opposition which looks any you know, like the kind of opposition that um, you know, uh, may win next time around. Um, it's always going to be difficult. I mean, after all, Jeremy Corbyn absolutely cratered uh, the Labour Party in, in 2019. Uh, you know, its, its brand is uh, tarnished, um, not necessarily beyond repair, but, you know, quite badly. It, uh, it lost uh, so many seats that it was the worst result in parliamentary terms since 1935. Um, the idea that an opposition can come back from that, even in a, in a very volatile uh, electorate, I, I think is, is for the birds. You know, I think it would be safe to say, um, you know, predictions are mugs game, but the idea that Labour can win an overall majority next time around, I think is incredibly unlikely. It needs something like, a, I think it's a 12% swing. It needs a swing bigger than it got in 45 or 97, just to win a one seat overall majority. I mean, you know, if ever you could say that's just not going to happen, I, I think you could say it now. What can Labour do? Well, I mean, it, it clearly needs to up its game. It will help uh, that the pandemic recedes, hopefully, uh, which may mean that opposition, you know, will uh, not continue to seem as it does at the moment to voters like carping. Uh, like being unreasonable, like being almost unpatriotic. I think that may make a difference. Maybe Keir Starmer actually getting out and addressing a live audience may make people reassess them. But it's very, very difficult as an opposition leader. I think once you've, you know, the electorate have made up your their minds about you to, to get back. Um, which means that Labour do have to think about the leadership. Um, as we all know, Labour's got a very bad habit of clinging on to leaders, even when it's very, very obvious that whether they're nice blokes or not, and they always have been blokes, uh, they're just not up to the, the job. And while Keir Starmer's obviously got, uh, in some ways, a lot going for him, if the numbers don't look right, then you know they are going to have to try and make that decision, or he himself is just going to have to try and make that decision. Now, that would be great if there was someone obvious waiting in the wings to take over. Um, but whatever Andy Burnham thinks, I'm not sure that that uh, is the case. So, I mean, essentially, then this boils down to Labour is in really, really big trouble. Well, we'll clip that little quotation anyway, just in case and uh, <laughs> yeah. back at nauseam. But uh, and, we, and we will come back, I think, to this issue of whether 
Labour's problems are contingent or more structural, because I think that's 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 the big issue. But but thanks for now, Tim. And can I just remind people to vote for the questions you'd like me to post to the panellists? Because there are so many of them already that if you don't vote, then I will not. I'll, I'll just get confused and leave out questions that you might want me to ask. Sarah, if we turn to the smaller party, I'm talking particularly about the Greens and the Lib Dems, which we've touched on, uh, what what lessons should they be drawing from the elections? And what, I mean, what lessons should the other parties draw about them? I, the I guess the first thing to say is that if you are a small party, like the Lib Dems or Greens, this is where you want to do well. I mean, this is your chance, really, local elections, because... Um, first of all, this is where voters don't have to think so much about who they want to be the prime minister. They worry a bit less about wasted votes. So they can vote more sincerely. They can signal that, oh, they would like more green policies or they're unhappy with the government. So normally this is a good chance for these sort of smaller challenger parties to do well. Um, and of course, also we have different kind of electoral systems working. So again, that's to their advantage. So that's just the sort of baseline to think about um, before we get sort of too carried away about how well or how well they haven't done. And I think they were decent elections, especially for the Greens. I think they will have taken some momentum from it. Uh, Paul already mentioned uh, uh, the Greens there. The Lib Dems, I mean, this is not a return to their glory days while they had some victories like in Cambridge and so on. I mean, they used to be a really, really strong party in local elections and it's not a return to this. And I, and I think they're just facing this very big existential crisis, given that they had their moment in history, which was this realignment around Brexit, where they were the Remain party. And we all know that they didn't manage to capitalize on that. And that must raise a question for the Lib Dems. Well, if they can't, if they haven't been able to do so in the last five years, when will they ever be able to? Um, but for the Greens, it's given them uh, some momentum. They did well, obviously, uh, in places like Bristol's, mainly in the towns, they also did well. Um, uh, in, for example, in London, uh, where I am in, in the mayoral elections, the Greens came third. It's obviously not close to winning, but it still kind of creates some momentum. Now, because of that, there's a lot have been written about this green wave. It's a bit like the German Greens. It's a bit like, and it's really not. Yeah, I mean, so we are not going to see the Greens taking over from the Labour Party, despite what Tim says, that they're in trouble. And, and the main thing, the main thing to keep in mind here is that Britain, if anything, even with the realignment, even with Brexit, what we've seen is that Britain is a very two-party dominant system, and there's just no real way in for other parties in general elections to make a difference. And I don't think that regardless of who is the Labour Party leader, that we're going to see the Green Party taking over as the big centre-left party the way they've been in, done in Germany. And that's really systemic in terms of the electoral system we have. So in that sense, there's not really a hope that this momentum, this positive result is going to create a sort of massive change uh, in the short to medium term in British politics. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't cause some trouble. Uh, and Paul has mentioned that, Tim has mentioned that in the next uh, general election to the major parties, they clearly can cause some damage. And here, you talk about the Greens and Lib Dems, but we used to have another set of challenger parties that have sort of had different labels, UKIP, Brexit Party, and uh, I can hardly remember their name, Reform UK. Uh, and they have not done so well. And this, I mean, we saw it in Hartlepool, the fact the Brexit Party vote collapsed, that that helped the, the Tories. So I think the fact that we now have the main challenge on the kind of progressive liberal left, centre left, uh, whereas the main far right challenger party or uh, radical right or however you want to call them uh, are no longer there 
uh, that is means that it's labor that is primarily in trouble, although of course also in certain constituencies, certain also the conservatives, but, but it does mean that labor is facing the conservatives doing very well in, in the North, where also if they turn all their attention to those kind of seats, they can lose votes to the Liberal Democrats and Green in the South and elsewhere. So there's really this sort of double-edged uh, challenge for labor in particular. And that comes back to the sort of the electoral uh, arithmetic of this, where I think the only way that both the Lib Dems and the Greens and Labour can probably deal with that electoral system challenge and the fact that Labour alone, like Tim uh, is saying, it looks very hard for them to get an outright majority alone, is that they have to think about some kind of electoral coalitions, both pre-election and post-election in terms of of making real inroads. I mean, just for the Labour Party to keep on ignoring that and being, oh, we can win a majority by on our own after losing Scotland uh, in terms of, uh, and thinking that that's, that it just doesn't seem particularly um, realistic. So that would seem kind of a, uh, like the way forward if, if, if you were thinking in that terms to think about, okay, can Labour step, step to stand down certain places, can Lib Dems and, and, and green step down other places in forthcoming general election to, to make it, to basically challenge the conservatives that are such a strong electoral force uh, right now. So I'll end it. Thank you. Yeah. And I think the flip side of that is the point that John Curtis made at our event the other day is that you've got to remember that the, the conservatives are uncoalitionable. So you know, whilst Labour have got a mountain to climb, at the very Labour at least have the prospect of being able to work with other parties. So actually, the bar is a bit lower for them in terms of getting into government. But whether or not they will, obviously, is a... and Tim will know better than I whether or not that's the kind of conversation they're having. But of course, that is how social democratic parties across Europe ultimately get into government. They don't win an outright majority by themselves, even in PR systems. I mean, that's just not the electoral game that centre-left parties are in. Uh, and, and of course, also not the centre-right. This is all about a kind of progressive coalition across this new left, old left uh, spectrum. And again, as you say here, there is, it's, the more, it's more obvious for the Lib Dems and for Greens to have some kind of conversation with Labour than it would be. And especially the Lib Dems being so burned after going into a coalition with the Conservatives. Um, can, I, can I just say, I mean, I, I would say, apart from the practical difficulties of getting that um, electoral pack together, which actually um, Mark Wallace from Conservative Home wrote a really good piece about um, in the, the I newspaper uh, recently. Uh, it's also a, a kind of rhetorical problem for, for the Labour Party, because if they admit that, then uh, the electorate uh, feels that the Labour can't win. Uh, and if they don't admit that, as Sarah says, um, they're being unrealistic. They get into the kind of the Joe Swinson uh, problem of uh, Keir Starmer or whoever might take over from him if he goes, sort of saying, I can be the prime minister. And it being absolutely obvious from the opinion polls that he or she can't be the prime minister. So it, it's really, really difficult, I think. And of course, we all remember 2015 and the problems in, involved in, the, in, in, the, in talk of working with the SNP. The whole sort of coalition of chaos thing. Paula, there's been a lot of talk about how COVID has changed politics and, and, and made people amenable to sort of more radical solutions than perhaps they were willing to uh, countenance beforehand. That this, you know, build back better and all these slogans are about we have to do things very differently going forward. Is, this, is there evidence that that's what the public are after as we come out of the pandemic? 
Not really. So there's, as you say, there's been an awful lot of talk about it and really not much evidence to suggest that that's actually where the public are at. Um, Tim already mentioned that this idea that I think politics has kind of been paused in, in almost like, yeah, almost look like put in the freezer for a little while post um, pandemic and, and hasn't returned to anything like normal yet. And I think we need to perhaps talk about what normal means in these in these circumstances, because I don't think we've had anything that looks like normal politics um, in the UK for, for really quite a long time, even before the pandemic. <clears throat> so I'm not sure any of us really know what, what normal would look like. But there's no evidence that there's this sense of wanting really radical change. If there was, we wouldn't expect to see incumbents um, doing particularly well in elections. And the polling around you know, what, what do people want to do? Do they want to get back to normal? Do they want a radical change? Um, questions about inequality that we saw from some of the Policy Institute work um, a couple of months ago. There just isn't the evidence there that people are clamoring for that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a party that wanted to do that couldn't generate that clamor if they wanted to, if they were offering a bold solution, if they were offering something that was about building back better. At the moment, all the momentum on that is, is with the Conservatives and the levelling up agenda. So any kind of idea of, of change is coming through that agenda rather than a kind of agenda of, of building back better that many people thought was, and we, we saw a lot of talk about it about this time last year, you know, we can't go back, we must value key workers, all these kinds of things that have just kind of disappeared from the debate since. And the one thing I'd say that kind of underpins all the things everybody else has said, is that we know from everything that happened in 2019, which feels like a lifetime ago now, given everything we've been through over the last year. But if we look at everything that happened in 2019, if we look at the polling from the start of the year to the general election, we know that the electorate are, are volatile. And I don't think that volatility has gone away. The fact that people are voting for different parties and in different patterns means they're less connected to parties. And so they are more volatile. And I think that means that Although things look really problematic for Labour at the moment and quite solid for the Conservatives at the moment, I think there is still that possibility that things could change really quickly with the right kind of with the right kind of catalyst underneath them. We saw that very rapid change happen twice during the course of 2019, first at the European Parliament elections and then very rapidly once, once we got into autumn 2019. I don't think there's any reason that can't happen again. I'm not saying necessarily will because it does require that catalyst to be there, whether that's a new policy vision for Labour, a new leader for Labour, a new challenge, challenge um, as Sarah's alluded to, on the right of the Conservatives even kind of winning back that Brexit party UKIP vote and, and changing the dynamic. But I don't think we can rule that out completely. Once kind of politics is defrosted again, if you like, so once we come out of this kind of pause, we don't quite know what's gonna come next, I don't think. You're on mute, Alan. Good, you'd think it'll learn by now. And I suppose the flip side is that, uh, you know, we don't know how well the government will perform. Uh, going forward sort of as we as we come out of the pandemic that you know the vaccine effect is there now clearly but if if the government is seen not to be doing very very well and the 
the system is as volatile as you say, then things can change quite quickly. Now, I should just stress to the audience, you are allowed to ask questions about parties other than the Labour Party. Uh, but let's let's get started with, with with your questions about the Labour Party now. And I suppose the first question from, from Peter Williamson is, is the one I hinted at before, which is sort of, to what extent are the problems of the Labour Party down to bad tactics, uh, bad messaging, or to what extent are they far more profound and more serious and structural, or are they a horrible combination of both? A small question for someone to get their Well, team. I mean, I would say they are a horrible combination of both. I mean, you know, the, the realignment uh, of British politics, which uh, occurred after Brexit, but in some ways was, you know, going on before Brexit and Brexit um, you know, was the catalyst and accelerated that movement uh, has really disadvantaged them in the sense that, um, you know, because of this, this sorting of the vote, um, particularly by place, um, Labour is, you know, piling up um, big majorities in more urban areas with, you know, better educated and, and younger populations, uh, while the Conservative vote is just much better distributed um, and they do better in uh, smaller towns. Uh, and other areas that, that, that is a, a real problem for Labour and although you know there will be some if you like unwinding of that um, it, it won't be um, quick enough um, to, to help Labour at the next election and maybe even the election after that so actually Labour to some extent uh, has to admit that it's um, you know it's wading through let's say mud in order to be able to uh, to, to win an election or, or you know, stand any chance even of being the, the largest party. Now that, as Paula said, doesn't mean that uh, an opposition party you know, can't to some extent make the weather. Uh, it has some control over you know, the, the framing of debates, what people are thinking about, the salience of particular issues. But compared to a government, uh, you know, it, its power to, to dictate um, the, the agenda is, is you know, relatively small. Um, what it, it has got uh, is, um, you know, the, the potential to, to make a difference with a, a leader who is attractive um, to uh, voters. Uh, and we know, you know, increasingly over time, leaders seem to be more of a heuristic for voters. So, so getting the leadership right is, is really, really crucial. I mean, on policy, I mean, I think um, you know, John Curtis was making the point in your event on Monday or Tuesday that, uh, you know, fortune favours the brave, as it were, the bold. And, and look at Boris Johnson, you know, he, he took uh, a risk, actually, a gamble in, in, you know, going so strongly uh, for Brexit in the way that he did, and, and it paid off. Um, but I think it's, it's actually quite difficult to do that in opposition. And it's quite difficult to do that simply with policy as well, because they'll come up, you know, against the old problem for oppositions, which is if you come up with anything that's halfway good or attractive, then the government will nick it anyway. <laughs> and I think that is a real problem. I mean, sorry, you, you, you intimated before that we're not turning into Germany and the Greens can't look over at what's happening there and think, oh, that will be us next. But our do Labour face the same structural problems that many social democratic parties in continental Europe have faced, that squeeze that can be absolutely crippling to them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a clear parallel to what we're seeing across continental Europe in terms of uh, the, the demand side. When you look at the old, the old electoral coalitions of, of the centre-left social democratic parties where you had the manual working class voters, you had the public sector voters and the urban professionals. 
um, which was in terms of certainly in terms of manual working class voters were based in quite strong class identities mm -hmm. and very strong long-standing attachments to uh, the Labour Party or similar social democratic parties. Now that's crumbling. Uh, Paula already suggested this increasing electoral volatility that we're seeing both here in the UK but also um, on the continent means that people just because they're in a particular uh, profession uh, and their manual working class don't necessarily think they have to vote Labour and we can see now that they do actually a majority of them vote Conservative. Now of course that can also turn around as Paula suggested and at some point this volatility can go in the favour of both sides, both parties, but right now that sort of old electoral coalition is certainly something that Labour cannot count on. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a very much more drastic decline of socialist social democratic parties in Europe, you know, in France, where they are almost non-existent as a sort of major electoral force and been taken over, replaced by Macron's En Marche. In Greece, where PASOK has mm. also been replaced by Syriza. And so, you know, some of these social democrats, and of course, Germany, where the, the Green Party are now the major center-left party. So in some um, of these countries, the, the social democratic parties face even greater challenges, you could argue, than Labour. Now, um, so, so, so on the demand side, we clearly see some similarities. I think there's a big fundamental difference uh, and that's, of course, the first past the post electoral system. And that offers protections for Labour in a sense. You can't just have en masse or the Green Party swooping in and saying, OK, now we're taking over uh, in the way that uh, we've seen it on the continent. So in a way, we, this two party system protects um, even when you have an unpopular leader, in some ways, Corbyn, I think, uh, Polso were even more unpopular than Keir Starmer is even now. And still, the Labour Party did quite well. Now, so, so that protects Labour, but it also means that the, the possibility that the Social Democratic parties have in Europe, which is these progressives saying, OK, we only have 20% of the vote, but we go together with the centrist liberals, with the new left parties, the Greens, and form an electoral coalition and alliance, that's not something that is as easy for the Labour Party to do in this system. They sort of have to go it alone. So they have to be able to have an electoral appeal in the way that Boris Johnson has managed to, that, that is really this broad coalition that's catch all enough to keep on to these urban metropolitan younger voters and also appeal to enough of the kind of more traditional base. And I guess they're not quite managing that at the moment, but that's the challenge they face. I do think in terms of talking about the Labour Party, there's a lot of focus looking sort of backwards at the traditional heartlands and not a lot of focus that if they if that's fully the way they go, they do face that challenge that actually some of the, the electoral where they have an electoral advantage, younger voters, urban voters, more well-educated voters, is a potentially growing part, certainly of the population, although hopefully for Labour also of the electorate, of course, these are not the same things. Mm. And so if they turn entirely turn their backs on that, that's also not necessarily a winning strategy uh, for Labour. And that's what we've seen also on the continent. So there's certainly structural challenges, but some of it, of course, also come down to strategy. But uh, if we just look at the polls, Labour still does better than most social democratic parties across mm. the continent. So it's not, it's not all over yet. But also the other strange thing would be, you know, a party that exists explicitly to provide representation for a certain sort of voter isn't getting voted for by that voter anymore. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, redefining yourself is, is, is quite hard if you're the Labour Party. But another paradox here for me is, you know, we've, we've mentioned Brexit in passing and Brexit is accelerating shifts that have been underway in our electorate for some time. And yet, 
the main opposition party seems determined to act as if Brexit doesn't exist, never to mention it, never to touch on it, to sort of sort of go about business without talking about it. Is that sustainable? Is that the right strategy for Labour, do we think? Or are they going to have to sort of address the B issue at some point? Well, it hasn't worked. So, I mean, it clearly hasn't worked. It's been a strategy, but, and I think Paula can talk more about this, but the two things, first of all, we see that in these elections, they did better. Uh, Conservatives won more votes in sort of leave leaning, strong mm -hmm. leave areas. And the, but the other thing that, 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 that I think Paula can elaborate on is this thing, this underlying sort of cultural dimension that, so it's not just Brexit in itself. It's also some of the values that are associated with Brexit where Boris Johnson is clearly seen as more of a champion of those values like national sovereignty, the sort of identity politics. So even if Brexit becomes less salient as it has done, some of that underlying realignment that we've seen that tempted many voters that might have traditionally been Labour voters to vote Conservative, that will continue to, to exist and, and cause trouble uh, for the Labour Party. Paula, do you want to come on this? Yeah, actually I wanted to come in on the earlier, on the earlier point slightly as well, because I think some of what we saw I mean, the, the, the reaction to the local election results on the Hartlepool loss over that weekend in the Labour Party was really quite extraordinary. Wow. And Paul mentioned at the start about turnout. We haven't got aggregate turnout figures, but we're looking at turnouts at ward level that range somewhere between 24% and 50%. So to react in that way to when, when actually the opinion polls the week before were suggesting that things were narrowing, then you react in such a dramatic way. And I think one of the things that was behind that was precisely because there were parts of the Labour Party that thought their problems were short term and that had expected this kind of almost immediate bounce back. Once they'd stopped talking about Brexit, once they changed leader, they could kind of bounce back quite quickly. And the thing that these elections showed them was that actually they couldn't and that there were these long term structural trends. And it wasn't just a case of not talking about Brexit and appearing competent, that there's something more structural to deal with. And I think that's the thing that's got to be picked up now for, for Labour, but it's also there for the Conservatives as well, because it does pose challenges. Our electoral system, it, it forces parties to, to make broad coalitions. And in a system where we're seeing um, values fragment into smaller groups, holding those coalitions together becomes more and more difficult. Um, and I think that actually poses challenges for both parties. Can I just add to that, though, on the other side of things with regard to the Hartlepool result? And it also obviously applies, I think, uh, to, to Batley and Spen, where the next mm -hmm. by-election is going to occur. There are a whole bunch of people in the Labour Party who, quite frankly, were pleased to have lost the Hartlepool by-election and would be pleased if they lost the Batley and Spen election because it you know, gives them the chance to say that the, the direction in which, you know, Keir Starmer has tried to take the party is wrong. Uh, you know, that they made a mistake by electing him in the first place, that they need to stick to the kind of radical agenda that Jeremy Corbyn offered in 2017, uh, supposedly so successfully, and in 2019, where they still managed to win the moral argument. Um, you know, so, so Labour has got a, a real problem uh, there. You know, there, there are a bunch of people. I'm not saying that Labour's problems are all down to this bunch of people, but there are a whole bunch of people in the Labour Party who, quite frankly, at the moment anyway, are quite happy to see it do badly because, uh, you know, it allows them to, to refight, as it were, the, uh, the, the leadership election of, of 2020. When it comes to 
leader. I mean, Paul, is, is there a leader in waiting in the Labour Party that the Conservatives are nervous about that we haven't noticed? You think you have to go back a prior stage and you know, talk about what Labour's problems are. And enough has been said about the structural problem uh, of uh, having these votes piled up in these, these great tiring red islands in uh, cities like Bristol, at least today, amidst this huge blue ocean of Tory vote. Enough's been said about that for me not to have to add anything. But there, there are two other factors. Um, one is time. I mean, time has really not been on Labour's side. Going back to Tim's point about these being midterm, in the sense, if there's an election in 2023, yeah, they're midterm, but psychologically they're not, because uh, COVID froze everything. That that's true. But there's another sort of time factor here, which is the obvious one that Boris Johnson has he's reinvented the Tories thanks to Brexit after all that Tory period before. You know, the years of a coalition and David Cameron, right? He's just swept those aside as though they'd never happened and presented the Tories as a completely new force. So during the last election, uh, there, there wasn't a sort of massive attack uh, on Boris Johnson over David Cameron's record because he'd broken away from it. Um, and that's helped the Conservatives enormously and mean that the passing of time for Labour is a is, is 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 a bigger problem. They've got more time to have to wear this government down. Um, you know, by now it, it should be worn down after about ten years of Tory rule, far more than it has. And as for the leadership point at the end, I mean, just to sort of comment on this as someone who watches watches Tory activists, I find Tory activists pretty hard to read. So when I was trying to read what Labour activists were thinking of when they put in Keir Starmer, I could only get a rough feel for it. But I honestly didn't feel that they were putting Keir in to win. I thought they were putting Keir Starmer in to provide a bit of order, a, a bit of sort of sober, loyally intelligence after, you know, what is, as Tim said, has been really a dire period for the Labour Party. And up until these elections, I thought Starmer was more or less doing that. Th that's not enough to form the government. You know, providing good order to an opposition party, you'll win if you get lucky, if you get one of sort of Paula Sturridge's kind of freak events out of the blue that changes everything. But you're not going to create the momentum yourself, as, um, you know, Tony Blair did in the 1990s. So they need someone quite different and something quite different. I think at the moment, honestly, um, I would think no one on the panel, certainly not myself, would have a clue what this new equivalent, very different sort of person from Tony Blair, very different politics from Tony Blair, but straddling that same kind of centre ground, I don't think we have a clear picture of what that person would look like yet. Mm. And I mean, all, all I would say, I mean, I, I think Paul makes a, you know, a number of very good points there, is that you know, if they do move towards replacing the leader and, and you know I'm not saying that they will do or that they should do necessarily but um, you know this this authenticity that, that Boris Johnson manages to bring to it whether it is <laughs> fake or not uh, does seem to be an incredibly important quality now uh, in a leader and you know whatever you think of Keir Starmer and, and his strengths um, for some reason he just doesn't connect in that way um, with the electorate. Now, you know, he, he may well be able to do that later on. He's got a sort of reasonable backstory and all those kinds of things. But in the end, you know, 
backstory can only do so much. You, you actually have to be now in, in our you know, presidentialized, for, for want of a better word, um, mediatized system. You, you have to be a, a character. Uh, and and it's, it's finding someone who can be both a character and, you know, um, competent and, and, you know, able to attack the government and able to bring the party together that's going to be so difficult, I think. Because they are facing the ultimate um, performative character, the ultimate showman. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, um, uh, as uh, I think Paul Sight has often pointed out, is a, uh, is a phenomenon. I mean, whatever you think of him and, you know, those of us who, who sort of can't in some way see why uh, he is so attractive to so many people have to face the fact that he is so attractive to so many people. Uh, and, and working out why exactly that is the case is, is incredibly important, I think, for the Labour Party. And although they, they can't simply magic up a Boris Johnson of their own, this person can't obviously, you know, be a sort of ersatz Boris Johnson, they have to have that kind of, you know, character, that kind of emotional connection. Uh, you know, it's difficult to see Keir Starmer, I think, establishing that in the next, you know, two, three years. Mm. Can I just add a kind of counterpoint to that? Yeah. Which is not, not that I particularly disagree, but that it's, it seems quite harsh to be judging any leader who's been a leader and only been able to appear on Zoom throughout that period. And yeah. actually in the bit, in the period of the election campaign, before we got to the results, the polls were closing a little bit. We were starting to see a bit more of Starmer out and about, the incident in the pub with the glasses and so on, that was starting to make some of those connections. And I think it's, it's again, it goes back to that timing thing, but judging um, whether or not a leader can connect with an audience when it hasn't actually been able to be in front of an audience <laughs> seems a little bit harsh. <laughs> mm. Mm. The problem is, is that first and second impressions count, and it's it's difficult, I think, to to move people away from uh, the judgments that they they make. Um, you know, certainly a year or two into your leadership. But but you're right. I mean, going back to the point that we've all made about this sort of arrested development of the political cycle, it, it may be that there are more opportunities for Keir Starmer than there would be for a leader normally at this time in the in the political cycle. I agree. So it might be too early to start thinking of Keir Starmer as the sort of uh, Neil Kinnock waiting for the guy who comes afterwards who can actually win an election. <laughs> yeah. That might be a bit too, might be a bit premature. We're getting a lot of questions on the red wall seats and I will put one of those questions to you. We've also getting questions about uh, Tony Blair's prescription in his New Statesman piece. I'm, I don't know whether anyone has read that in sufficient detail to want to talk about it. I read the press reports about it. I must confess I haven't actually read the piece itself, but does I mean, the question from Mady is, what do you make of Tony Blair's prescription of deconstruct and then reconstruct for the Labour Party? I don't know if any of you are comfortable speaking about this. I feel a bit bad asking you things I haven't read it myself, but... Does... Well, I have read it. Um, okay. I mean... You're a step ahead. You know, um, typically for Tony Blair, it's incredibly well written, you know, really neatly framed. Um, but, you know, some people would argue uh, in, in some ways a little bit too easy in, in the sort of focus on, you know, this sort of technological revolution, which mm. uh, seems to have kind of replaced, you know, globalization in his uh, yeah. vocabulary. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, he, he makes, you know, a, a devastating point about, you know, you need someone who's both radical and interesting. 
and uh, uh, they they've gone for someone who was radical and then you know they maybe haven't got someone who's um you know might be interesting but you know i don't know so, so that's a that's a problem um uh, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, what does he mean by deconstruction and reconstruction? You know, can you actually deconstruct a party uh, and, and, and completely rebuild it? Well, you know, you can say that he managed to do that. But of course, as you already pointed out, Arnand, he did that, you know, after years and years of, you know, Neil Kinnock mm. um, doing a lot of the groundwork. Um, so in some ways, he didn't need to completely take the Labour Party apart and put it back together again. That wasn't what was required. He needed to kind of finish off a, a job of work. And the Labour Party is in much more trouble now um, than when Blair inherited the, the, the leadership in, in 1994. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you were to really take him at his word, you would say he's talking about founding almost a, a completely new party. But of course, we saw where... You know that ended up um, with with Change UK. That doesn't mean it can't be done, um, but I think it can only be done in, in some ways with with the consent of the Labour Party itself, with the consent of uh, the Liberal Democrats, perhaps. Um, you know, it, it, in order to get a, a new centrist or centre-left party uh, of the kind that you know the the idea of complete deconstruction um, suggests. You know, it, it, it can't be, you know, seven or eight MPs walking out. It probably can't even be 100 uh, MPs walking out. It has to be a commitment on the part of the Labour Party itself uh, to make, you know, a massive change uh, and probably the Liberal Democrats as well, some sort of merger. And that's just really difficult to see to see how that happens, given, you know, the, the way that the Labour Party itself is structured. Does anyone else want to come in on Blair's intervention? Actually, before, before we get on to the Red Wall, I mean, just building on what Tim was talking about, the need for authenticity and having characters or whatever, but isn't one of the lessons of this election as well that actually competence really matters too? I mean, that's what we see in the sort of success of incumbents. Does, does, is, is that one of the lessons we should be taking from this? Is that competence still matters alongside all these other issues? I mean, in a sense, it's come back to matter with COVID, isn't it? I mean, it was yeah. fascinating. We did have that period where... Brexit dominated so much. I mean, it maybe seemed a long time ago, but where it was all about Brexit. And really there, it was so polarized, uh, you know, along these, this kind of clear yeah. fault line that all of a sudden it wasn't about, you know, how well can you manage, you know, the economy, or in this case, a public health crisis, but just, you know, where do you stand on this deeply polarizing issue of identity? And then mm -hmm. when you have something like, you know, an economic crisis, or in this case, a public health crisis and I guess also an economic crisis, then it does um, become about who can also govern. And I think one thing we sort of overlook when we talk about the timing and we say, oh, but of course uh, the Tories would do well because they are doing so well, is that this has not been the case during the whole pandemic. We saw, if we look at, at, at the research, we saw an immediate sort of bounce, the sort of rally around the flag, which we saw here, really across uh, the world in terms of incumbents benefiting all the way back in March, April, May 2020 from the pandemic. And then we saw, uh, particularly here and in the US, actually a real decline in people's perception of how well this government, and of course also this hurt, uh, the uh, you know President Trump a real decline in perceptions of what was uh, how well it was gone and we forget this now with all these PP crisis so you know there is this kind of counterfactual alternative 
reality where the vaccine rollout would not have been as successful, where we would not be in the, have had local elections without the vaccine, a successful vaccine rollout, without us opening up. You know, we do have, you know, very high death toll and, and, and a long period where, where the UK was seen in a European context as the worst performer. Now, of course, because of the vaccine rollout, we are now in a situation where, you know, I always sort of, uh, I'm amused uh, in the morning when I listen to the Today program, how any government ministers would say, oh, the world beating vaccine rollout. There's a kind of these sort of, uh, uh, and that's always there. And of course it's, it's brilliant. And I think everyone in the UK will be thrilled about how well things are going there. But it's just to say that this, this was, um, this was not always necessarily going to happen. And also the fact the vaccine rollout is going well does not mean that we would be in the same situation in six months or a year and a half. Clearly competence matters and that mattered for that timing, but we are now going to face a situation where we come out of this or we can just spend our way out of any kind of crisis. And where the conservative and Paul will no doubt have views and that will also face some quite big internal questions, you know, what do you do? You've had these very high levels of public spending that makes it almost impossible for Keir Starmer to articulate some kind of more left-wing economic vision than just basically paying everyone's salary who's out of a job. I mean, it doesn't get much more kind of socialist than that. And then, uh, but then how are we going to, are we going to increase taxes? Presumably that's an issue within the conservative party that labor traditionally maybe find a bit easier to deal with. Uh, oh, are we going to keep spending like that? Are we, you know, how do you reconcile this thing about leveling up and spending on red wall seats as opposed to people uh, in other areas who don't want higher taxes, who don't want higher corporation taxes, who are the conservative heartlands? You know, what does it take for them to sort of say, actually, uh, the conservatives are no longer acting in their interest. So, so I just think with the timing point, again, that is not fixed either. Yes, the conservatives are seen as co competent now and yes, competence matters more in a health crisis, but that is not something that's necessarily going to be permanent. And we've already seen that, that, that this government has been seen as quite incompetent in handling uh, the crisis for, for quite long periods during the last 14 months. On, on the... Um... This competence question is, is fascinating because Boris Johnson doesn't do competence. He doesn't project competence. I don't mean he's incompetent. I mean, he's uncompetent or acompetent. He's not what he's projecting emotionally. Um, what he does is dazzling crashes and then equally dazzling recoveries. So in our, our own con home poll of party members, he was in negative ratings last autumn. Mm. Having had a 93% approval rating after the general election of 2019, and now he's recovered. This has been the story of his career. And what he he's he somehow has a sort of magical full staffian ability to do is to persuade voters that this mode of being or of politics is fun and sustainable and delivers in some way. So it'd be a really interesting question if at some point in the next few years, the working of time persuades voters that he's not delivering, which is possible. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, coming back to some of where we all started, I think um, he would want the option of having this election in 2023, because it will come after um, a, a year of, um, of rapid growth, we're told. Um, 
people um, will presumably be feeling a certain liberation after lockdown, hoping we, we get out of it. And I think emotionally, tonally, that sort of election campaign would suit him down to the ground mm. because it's a point of celebration. If the mood turned, if you have one of, I'm coming back again to one of sort of Paula's um, kind of unknown unknowns, that's a different matter. And just on Sarah's point about potential uh, arguments within the Conservative family over the future direction of economic policy, is that something that is going to happen within, I mean, within both the Parliamentary Party and the party more broadly as we, as we, as we, as we emerge from lockdown? Is there going to be that clear difference of opinion over? I, I think in only one year since the crash, have you had growth as fast as before it? So everything... I think will depend on whether the growth comes. Because if the growth doesn't come, hmm. uh, very often uh, in the UK it doesn't, then there are agonising decisions about what to do next. Yeah. Um, you know, do you put up taxes? Do you cut spending? Um, do you go the full, um, you know, a, a, a sort of American supply side route of cutting taxes and still hoping the growth comes? What about inflation? You know, all these questions um, in the medium term are quite quite pressing. I'm not sure they're pressing before 2023, coming back to the election point. But sure, um, there are differences of view. But at the moment, the Tories are on such a kind of steeplechase by moonlight um, and have been so relatively successful that the sort of effective nationalisation of the railways or turning back towards a more cooperative rather than a competitive model in health They'll take all that in, in, in their stride as long as they're vaulting these fences by, by moonlight. When it gets more difficult, that's a, that's, a different, that's a different question. I mean, you're going to do the red wall stuff in a moment. So, yeah. you know, a, a question about that will be how will those voters feel about it? Or how will that affect Conservative MPs and the party as a whole? Interesting. So on, on the red wall, I mean, I suppose there are two broad questions that are coming in from uh, people watching at the moment. The first is how should Labour go about winning back the red wall seats? But the second is, should this be Labour's focus? Uh, which touches on what we were talking about earlier, actually, is should, should Labour be looking backwards, as it were, and figuring out how to get back the seats it traditionally held? And if so, how? Well, I mean, just to come in, I mean, it, it should be looking to try and win some of those seats back, but it has to do that by looking forwards rather than backwards. I mean, Labour has got a real nostalgia problem, a, a real kind of fetishization of a traditional working class, which is, you know, shrinking and, and of course, changing at the same time. Uh, and Labour's also likes to see itself as the, the party of the, you know, the underdog or the oppressed or, you know, the, 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 the deprived when um, clearly it wants to win those um, voters, but it actually also has to win. And this is what Blair was saying and has always been saying. It has to win voters who are not only sort of just about managing, but in some cases reasonably comfortably off uh, as well. So um, it, it can't uh, win those seats back um, by a simply, you know, turning itself, uh, you know, in, into, you know, a, a sort of culturally conservative uh, party wrapping itself in the flag that clearly doesn't work because it doesn't look authentic. Um, yeah. But but nor can it do what say Angela Rayner is suggesting and, and and you know some somehow sort of talk with a more working class accent and expect those people to to come to come back to it. Um, so it, it really has to I think focus on you know 
principally a, a kind of economic offer, an educational offer, um, and, and a sense of you know labour, you know, understanding what the, the the forces in society are that are going to shape all our futures, and, and you know, a, a sense that labour you know knows how to harness those. Uh, and, and make a better society for, for everyone. But if it, it simply goes into an election, you know, um, saying, you know, you need to vote for us because, you know, somehow we're, we're kind of morally superior. <laughs> um, mm. uh, uh, and or we've got this, you know, working class heritage, that's just not going to work at all. And of course, as Paul was saying, it's it's about far more than simply winning back seats you've lost. It's preventing further losses in those places yeah. like Doncaster, Pontefract, Normanton, uh but paul have you got any thoughts on this um what labor should do and what yeah, it could well do? of course um you know, following tim you know labor's got to think about the future and that means having an economic message and a, a social message on the on the economy you know you're going to get heard when the tories fail which will happen sooner or later right um, so that, to some degree, is out of out of Labour's hands. It's got to go to hearing. I mean, on, on the patriotic question, I do think there's a problem for Labour over time um, in in losing the sense that um, it, it kind of did have with you. I'm sorry to go back to Blair or, or or Wilson, but you know when you saw the Union flag flying around a bit more, and you felt that Labour meant it. I mean, Blair was greeted by a little kind of um, lake of union flags being waved in Downing Street when he came in in 1997. And I think Labour's at least got to sort of make its peace with um, patriotism. What it kind of doesn't want to feel, doesn't you know, voters don't want to feel is that um, the party has somehow got people in it who are saying that you, your type of voter in your type of place, is somehow to blame for everything historically. I think Labour's kind of got to be able to break away from that in order to help it have a bit of a hearing. Interesting. Paula or... So. Yeah, I think I want to sort of... I don't... I, I think Labour need to win some of those seats back. I don't think there's any other path to even a coalition without stopping further losses and winning some of those seats back. But I don't actually think a relentless focus on a small part of the country is the way to do that. So I think if they can connect with the right kinds of voters in all sorts of places, then that is the strategy to go for. And I think by constantly, by constantly kind of, you know, every single policy has to be checked as to whether or not the voters of Doncaster or Rotherham are going to go along with it is not a helpful way to, to try and make policy. And if you can reconnect with voters across a really broad spectrum, then you will hold those seats and you will also win Swindon perhaps Reading, a few other places like that as well, where there are voters of a similar type. Now, I know John Curtis made this point on Monday about when Labour wins, it wins everywhere kind of idea. But I think the problem with that as, a, as an idea is that if you look at the different types of voters that, that Labour could win, it's already winning most of those in the kind of liberal left groups, most of those in those groups in the cities. So actually you can't, you can't rise up in that group much further. So you've got to win votes in the groups where you're doing less well. But I think thinking about those as voters with particular types of um, social profiles and values and identities is much more fruitful than thinking about them being located in particular kinds of places. 
Are there lessons from other European countries that Labour could learn, Sarah? I mean, I think we, we, we touched upon this already, that um, that other European countries, we have social democratic parties that face similar sort of existential challenges and because they have different, you know, and, and are being wiped out certain places, yeah, yeah. but this sort of, uh, and of course what we see in other European countries is we tend to have uh, these challenges, not as in one large mainstream uh, right, right wing party, like we have with the conservative party, but in a very fragmented party system. And, and the big question in, in Europe is often, you know, do you, do you try and appeal to voters of the radical right, uh, who you might have lost, or what do you do about losing voters to the Green Party? And again, so, so this kind of challenge manifests itself as very concrete parties, whereas yeah. with the conservative party, they sort of uh, managed to have this big broad electoral coalition. So I don't think there's the one answer. I mean, everyone will have their own favorite case. Or is it Denmark where you, you're a bit tough on the Syrians and then you look like you can win some votes back or is it, um, you know, is it the, the, the Spanish solution? I, but but the, the truth is that these parties generally, you know, do not win outright majorities. Generally, if they are in government, they're in government because they can form coalitions with other parties on the center left. Uh, so, uh, so, so I think the answer to saying, oh, if we just become a bit more like this and that, I mean, exactly like Tim and, and, and Paula were saying, you, they do have to be this broad umbrella and they do have to be a sort of an economic vision uh, that is one that appeals both to, to voters that might be more traditional labor voters, but also does not alienate the more urban metropolitan, well-educated and younger voters, and not only not alienate them, but excite them so they come out and vote. Because um, in one way, the, the, the conservatives are benefiting from the fact they have an old, uh, a relatively old electoral base, but that base really turns out and votes. Now, that's also... Uh, uh, a weakness for the conservatives. If I was a conservative strategist, I would be a bit worried that if you compare with social democratic voters um, in the continent, in fact, there's much bigger age skew in the UK. In other words, that younger voters vote, vote much more overwhelmingly for Labour, but they turn out in lower numbers. So it's not just about you know, getting people to be persuaded by the labor message, but also getting all those younger voters. Again, there's a problem about the concentration and where are they, but still getting them to turn out to vote. But it clearly has to be, a, I mean, one, I think, um, fair criticism of, of the labor campaign this time around is that even someone who's sympathetic to Starmer might say it's a bit difficult to know what he stands for in terms of, for example, the big economic vision. And I think some of that will be easier when we're not in the middle of a pandemic and when we don't have a conservative party that just writes blank checks for anything and anyone. And so in that sense, it's really almost impossible to outflank them with a better yeah. offering on the public services. So I think in, in some ways, Labour's, uh, it will be easier going forward for Labour to articulate that alternative vision. Can I just come in there? I mean, it pains me to say it as someone who spent, you know, most of their kind of professional life studying European politics as much as British politics. But to be honest, uh, I think, you know, Labour does have to look across the Atlantic rather than look across the Channel yeah. uh, for, for an example. Um, you know, partly because the, the, the US is, you know, a first-past-the-post system, although clearly it's a presidential system as well. But, I mean, I, I think the Biden campaign, uh, in, in terms of its ability to straddle um, in the way that um, Sarah and Paula were talking about is, is probably a model, actually. Um, and they did it with a candidate who was, you know, not particularly actually uh, a, a character, although he was quite authentic, I think. 
um, but was reassuring. Um, and clearly, you know, they were facing a, a very weak candidate in some ways in, in, in mm. Donald Trump. And I think Boris Johnson is a, a much more difficult proposition than, uh, than Donald Trump was. But, um, you know, there are some lessons to be learned there in terms of bridging, you know, quite a, you know, potentially fissaporous electoral coalition. Mm. I do wonder, actually, sometimes whether Labour just shouldn't just start by taking Boris Johnson a bit more seriously. Uh, as a very very talented politician than many of them seem capable of doing we've got a, we've got a question about uh wales from gethin reese about what lessons if any labor nationally should learn from the success of mark drayford I'm, I'm tempted to say glibly well they should win an election then they can benefit from incumbency but uh paula uh you actually have some knowledge on this online so <laughs> a little bit not too much but a little bit um actually there should be um, a blog about this coming on the UK ICE website fairly soon. Um, so one of the things, obviously in Wales, there is also partly this incumbency effect going on and, um, mm. and we need to take that into account. Um, Mark Drakeford's personal ratings improved over the course of the pandemic. His, um, just people, his kind of recognisability, the number of people who didn't say don't know when asked what they thought about Mark Drakeford um, reduced signif significantly over the pandemic. So that does kind of say, well, you, you know, you win elections and then you win elections, which doesn't really help you win elections. Um, but I think the other thing that the Labour and Wales have been able to do is they've been able to connect with that sense of identity that we talked quite a lot about on Tuesday in the National Identities panel. So Welsh Labour have been able to, to, to really trade on that Welsh bit and been able to um, keep hold of voters who feel strongly Welsh they were able to keep, <clears throat> sorry, keep hold of a certain amount of the Leave support in Wales through that. Um, and in the most recent elections, where there was a similar kind of level of UKIP support to, to, to wash out of the system, as it were, as there was in some of the English councils, although the Conservatives gained some of that support, they didn't gain it all, and, and, and Welsh Labour were able to hold on to some of that. So I think one of the key lessons there for UK Labour is, is thinking about how they can connect with people and with people's sense of identities, and that's something that they haven't, it goes beyond competence it goes beyond trust it's very difficult it's it's quite a soft thing to try and get a hold of um, but it's something that UK Labour have been really bad at since at least 2010 and I think explains quite a lot of the structural problems that they face um, since then. Yeah can I just come in there I mean I think it's incredibly important that Labour try and develop an English identity but it's going to be really really difficult I mean in some ways it, it shouldn't be that difficult because there's clearly a Welsh Labour Party there's clearly a Scottish Labour Party but the the nostalgia that Labour has for both Scotland and Wales insists you know it, it makes it feel as if it must be a kind of UK party but it it would be advantaged very strongly, I think, by creating a, a more obviously English identity, because one of the things that the Conservatives have been very, very good at, obviously, is winning English voters. Um, you know, the Conservatives in some ways don't need to do that because the, the, the you know, the, the development of the, of the country has always been England first and then the, the Union, etc. But they, they, they don't need to do it so much. But the Labour do. But it's going to be really, really difficult because if you think about how much trouble so many Labour members and supporters have with the union flag. Goodness knows how much trouble they have with, with Labour trying to, <laughs> to fly the cross of St George. Yeah, I mean, and are we just implying that Labour should give up on Scotland? Uh, 
I mean, what what can and should Labour try and do in Scotland? What what strategy should they adopt? Do they have to sort of soften their position on India F2? I mean, is there anything they can do? I think they could probably do something as a Scottish Labour Party, um, you know, completely isolating itself from uh, the, the UK um, party, or not completely, but in the same way that the Welsh Labour Party have a you know very strong identity. But as far as the UK Labour Party is concerned, I mean, you know, I'll put my stretch my neck out and say no it's gone I mean you know they're, they're just not going to win that many seats again unless of course and Paul's always brought this up you know the the whole independence thing erupts we get a, a second referendum the SNP lose it and then there is perhaps rather more to play for but uh, unless and until that happens I think you know I think Labour should you know, not not write off Scotland, obviously, but it, it should concentrate its efforts. You know, where it has more of a chance. But, but doesn't that also mean that Labour will face a very difficult question in the next general election, where, if assuming Scottish independence is still on the agenda, I mean, now we talk a lot about all oh, the Conservatives losing the union and so on over Brexit, but Labour is going to find a difficult strategic challenge. Is what is their position going to be? You know when they have to formulate a much more explicit position on Scottish independence and or allowing them to have a referendum or not. The, the awkward truth for the Conservatives is from a certain point of view they need a Labour revival in Scotland. Um, from their own interest at Westminster, no. From the point of view of, of saving the Union, which is not matters to them emotionally very much, um, and this um, brings one to the kind of interesting subject of, of, of tactical voting, which came up in the, in the English context, because there was some evidence of it, I think. I'm not an expert on, on Scotland. I've not looked at the elections. But there was sort of some evidence, I think, in, I think it was Dumbarton, where Labour held on actually a crucial election, that pro-union Tory voters had gone out and voted Labour. The point I wanted to make is that's incredibly difficult to do and um, I just sort of want to pour a little bit of cold water on this idea of uh, a progressive alliance of sort of left-wing voting, because it doesn't necessarily happen. Just imagining if you could get there, you have a conservative fight against someone else, one individual candidate, under first past the post. You can't guarantee Labour voters will vote for a Liberal Democrat, if they turn out or agree. You can't guarantee Liberal Democrat voters will vote Labour rather than Tory. As time goes on, maybe that's more likely. But, you know, coming back to, to, to Scotland again, this kind of tactical voting and candidate withdrawing, um, cliche, but it is like herding cats, it's very difficult to do. Mm. No, I think and there is a piece on our website, actually, that is very, very profoundly sceptical about the uh, yeah. potential for a progressive alliance. But Paul, would you like to add anything on this progressive alliance point? Uh, I don't know if you were gesturing with your hand there or... No, I just got a sore eye. <laughs> oh, all right, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're a minute from our end time and I've got a very, very bad track record of shooting way over time. So, I mean, there is nothing that's been massively upvoted among the questions. So I'm tempted to try and sort of 
do something I've never done before, which is to actually finish one of these events on time, the time we promised the speakers. So as it's 14 minutes past, this is a good opportunity to thank all of you. I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff to dig into here. Uh, I, I would say follow all four of our panelists on Twitter if you want to follow their work. Uh, come back tomorrow. For those of you whose question hasn't been asked today or whose questions haven't been asked earlier this week, we have an event tomorrow that is just a simple come up and ask your questions. There'll be no sort of prior discussion. We're just going to go through all your questions and put them to our panel. So do come back at the same time tomorrow if you have questions that haven't been answered this week. But for the time being, Paula, Sarah, Paul, Tim, thank you ever so much. Enjoy the rest of your day and thank you all for watching. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much.